God, we cling to you this morning. We come to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In need of truth, in need of hope. Lord, I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning. And lead us to where you desire us to be. To the place that you have prepared for us. You have made a way for us into the Holy of Holies, into your presence. And in your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So I pray that you would satisfy our hungry souls in you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' precious, holy, and sufficient name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome to Park Community Church. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Usually we take some time here and do some announcements. We're not going to dive into announcements this morning. Um, I'm going to give you a few ways to connect with our church at the end of the service. But this morning we want to we dive right into seeking God together as a church family. As you see up there on the screen, there's not really a sermon this morning. Um, so there's not really a sermon title. But as I thought through this morning and prayed through this morning, just the phrase, united in Christ, divided we stand, hit me. And I want to remind us this morning, church family, that we are united in Christ. That Jesus has united a people for himself. And so that's the gospel truth. That we are citizens of a radically diverse and united heavenly kingdom. True? Amen? And... We live in a racially divided and broken earthly home. Amen? Now, I don't say amen to affirm that, but amen to that is our reality. This is the tension that we live with as God's people, as all people, whether you are a Christ follower or not. Certainly, you felt the racial division in our world. Maybe you've just been aware of it for the last couple months. Maybe you've been aware of it for years, and you've been trying to figure out how to engage this for years. And I want to remind us this morning that Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, which we've been looking at over the past several months, the book of Philippians, and a few weeks ago we read Philippians 3.20, it says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.19 says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jesus told his followers, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people Back to Philippians 3.20, our citizenship, those of us in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, church, I want us to engage how, I want us to engage God in, in I've been asking for the last several months, the Sunday after George Floyd was killed, I, I stood up and I said that we want to move from this being a trending issue, racial inequality and racial injustice in our world. And we as a church, we want to move it from the trending nature of it into the trenches. And 
I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that looked like. I still really don't. But over the last several months, God has been working me over and over and over. And then again this week, another black man shot by a cop and more protests, more riots, more looting, more confusion, more brokenness. What I want us to see this morning, what God has convicted me of over the last several months is, do I see the brokenness? Or do I see what, what I want to see or how I interpret things? A pastor that I listen to often, H.B. Charles, said, the Bible calls us to weep with those who weep, not to judge whether or not they should be weeping. I've been guilt, guilty of judging people's weeping rather than weeping with them. And so this morning, I want us as a church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, I feel like God is calling us to engage us together. And the question is, how? How do we engage the, the racial injustice and the brokenness in our world? Now, racial injustice is just one of the many issues in our world that's broken, right? But it's one that is continually put in front of us today and over the last couple months. And it's one that I feel ne- that I've been neglectful of personally as your pastor. And so we're all in different places on our journey, but I feel like God is calling us as a church family to engage this specific brokenness this morning. And so how do we do that? That's what I've been asking over the last couple months. How do, we, how do we do that? How do we move from the trendy nature of this into the trenches? And a few brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ of color have told me, weep with us, lament with us. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We did a lament series back in the spring. And in that lament series, we define lament as the space between present pain and future promise. And I know that typically we struggle to lament. We don't like to be sad. Many of us do. Some of you might be fine with sadness and you like to lament. But towards the end of the, of the sermon series this spring, multiple people had said, could we move on? Could we get over with this? I'm sick of being sad. I don't want to come to church and sit in sorrow. I want to be encouraged. I want to be uplifted. And, and there's a time and a place for that. And the church is part of what the church does is uplift us and, and give us hope. But part of what the church is called to do is to engage brokenness and sadness and sorrow and weeping. And so this morning, we're going to lament racial brokenness in our world. And the space between, we're gonna, what, what is lament? It's the space between present pain and future promise. And so this morning, we're going to do four things. I, I really, I feel like God's leading us to have in experience together as a church family. Usually we do expositional preaching of the scriptures. We're looking at scriptures this morning. We just read a few scriptures, but I believe God's calling us into a space of joining with one another and having a corporate experience of lament, of stepping into the space between current, present pain and God's future promise that we will all be united in one. That though we are united in Christ now and divided, we stand that one day we will be united. We're already united in Christ, but one day that will be realized and we will actually stand united. And there won't be division or, or conflicting opinions among us. And so this morning we're going to lament through song and prayer. We're going to lament through confession. We're going to lament through listening. And then we're going to celebrate communion together at the end, which is what unifies us. And so we're just going to continue this worship experience this morning. I'm going to call Samantha Ewert, one of our members, up to read a prayer of lament for us. And then Pastor Ben is going to lead us through a song of lament.
This is a lament from um, a book called Every Moment Holy. There is so much lost in this world, O oh Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers, for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. O oh Lord, how can we not weep when waking each day in this veil of our tears? We weep, O oh Lord, for the cost of our rebellions, for the mocking and hollowing of holy things, for the inward curve of our souls, for the evidences of death outworked in every field and tree and blade of grass, crept up in every creature, alert in every longing, infecting all fabrics of our lives. We weep for the wretched expressions of all that were built first of the goodness and glory, but are now their own shadow, but are now their own shadow twins. We have often wept so often, and we will weep again. And yet, there is somewhere in our tears a hope still kept. We feel it in the darkness like a tiny flame when we are told, Jesus also wept. You wept, Lord. So moved by the pain of this crushed creation, you, O Lord, heave with us the grief of it, drinking the anguish like water and sweating it out of your skin like blood. Is it possible that you, in your sadness over Lazarus, in your grieving for Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? For the grief of God is no small thing, and the weeping of God is not without effect. The tears of Jesus preceded a resurrection of the dead. O Spirit of God, is it then possible that our tears might also be a kind of intercession? That we, your children, in our groaning with the sadness of creation, could be joining in some burden work of coming restoration? Is it possible that when we weep, it is because the curse has raged so far and so wide, that we weep at that which breaks your heart, because it has also broken ours, sometimes so deeply that we cannot explain our weeping even to ourselves? If that is true, then let such weeping be received, O Lord, as an intercession newly forged of holy sorrow. Then let our tears anoint these broken things, and let our grief be as their consecration, a preparation for their promise, redemption, our sorrow sealing them for that day when you will take the ache of all creation and turn it inside out like the shedding of an old gardener's glove. O Lord, when your children weep, use our tears to baptize what you love. I wrote this song last spring during the Lament series. It's based on Psalm 77. Um, but the uh, Psalm 42 passage we read this morning, um, after the psalmist says what we uh, quoted, after that he says, my soul is cast down with me, therefore I remember you. And that's basically what this song is about, what Psalm 77 is about, um, that in the midst of our trouble, and sorrow, what, we, what our job is, what we need to do is to remember God, to remember the gospel, to preach the gospel to ourselves.
Broken and hurting, my undeserving. Have I been forgotten? Is he even listening? Lonely and searching, oh, quiet my soul. What can I say when I'm desperately out of control? My Lord, I cry out to God in the night. In the day of my trouble, I find the Lord, He will hear me when I cry out. Lord, I am faithful. Lord, I am true. Will you keep your vows to carry me through this time? God in the night, in the day of my trouble I find, the Lord will hear me when I cry out, I cry out to God in the night, in the day of my trouble I find, the Lord As we continue walking through this this morning, the next piece is to lament through confession. So lament is a multifaceted thing. It, it, it comes about in our prayers, in our songs, in our conversations, in our own tears, in our own slowness. 
of tears. And part of the way to come to lament is to acknowledge our own brokenness. Right? We see the brokenness of the world, and I, and, I, and I hope you're all feeling it. And I hope before passing angry judgment, we can learn to weep with those who weep. To mourn the brokenness of the world that we live in, not to point fingers at the brokenness or try and rush to fixing the brokenness. God has put us here as ambassadors of Christ to bring justice where there's injustice. That's the call of the church. But oftentimes we, we, we want to run to solutions and run to fix things because we don't like sorrow, we don't like sadness, we don't like brokenness. And, and so part of what we are on, what we're doing as a church is trying to journey into that because the scriptures are filled with laments. And so the next phase of this lamenting this morning is to lament through confession. If we're ever going to grow, we need to allow God, as the Psalms say, to search our hearts, to reveal to us our hidden sins. And so I can't confess your sins for you. You need the Lord to search your own heart and to reveal to you your hidden sins. And so this morning, I'm just going to make some confession. As God has searched my heart, as he has worked me over through the loving, gracious voices of brothers and sisters of color in my life and through his scriptures and through podcasts and books, in the last couple months, I've just been deep in this hole of trying to figure this stuff out. I figured it out. No. I'm more confused and more broken and more lost about racial injustice than I was in my comfort zone in May before George Floyd was killed. And so what, all that I've, that I've had people tell this to me, that one of the best things that we can do as a primarily white church and what I can do as a white pastor is to lament, to weep with those who weep. I, and I heard that, but I didn't feel it right away. And one of the reasons I didn't feel it is because I was looking for solutions. I thought, I'm a pastor. I'm called to help fix the racial inequalities in our church. Our church is, is mobilized to go out and, and fix racial inequality in the world. And I even said in May that we need to listen and learn because I knew, well, we can't just run to fixing things. But, but even in that listening and learning, there was a step that was missing and it was lament. And it's been a slow process for me to, to, to lament racial brokenness and to feel it in my own soul. And so this morning, I just want to make confession to you, church family. Maybe this applies to some of you as well, maybe not, but this is what has been true for me in these last couple months. I've been slow to listen and quick to speak. I confess that and I want to repent of that. The scriptures call us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And I personally, I've been slow to listen and quick to speak. I've been blind to see the pain of brothers and sisters of color and to acknowledge that it's real. Or that it's as big of a deal as they may think it is. Can you, can you imagine? We all know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that. You share your frustration with somebody and they're like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm guilty of that. I've been 
quick to protect my white privileges. Now, think what you want about white privilege. I'll tell you, I have some white privilege, and I can identify it as comfort and convenience. And I've just been quick to want to protect that. <laughs> I want to ignore these these hurting brothers and sisters because it's uncomfortable to have these conversations and I like comfort. I would rather just enjoy my life as it is and enjoy my comfort and enjoy my convenience. I don't want to be in convenience with other people's problems and pains. I don't. And that's wrong. Jesus left heaven on high, came to earth, walked among us, greatly inconveniencing himself, leaving heaven on high, glory on high, to walk among us and to be ridiculed, to be spit on, to, 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 to deal with the frustration of telling people the truth over and over again and then rejecting it, to see people hurting one another. My king, my savior, my lord, he left his heavenly privileges and came to walk among our earthly sufferings. And personally, I don't want to leave behind my privileges to walk along with others in their suffering, and that's not like Christ. I've been quick to look past the pain of others while passing judgment of their cry. Like H.B. Charles said, the Bible calls us to weep with those who weep, not to judge if they should be weeping. I've been quick to judge those who are weeping or try to correct their weeping. Like, yeah, I can see why you're sad, but here's why you misinterpreted this or that. Or it's not really the way that you see it. It's actually the way that I see it. Again, slow to listen and quick to speak. And so church family, I'm sorry. I confess that to you in hopes of repentance. Confession is just verbalizing what's wrong. Repentance is then turning, it's changing. It's saying, here's where I was, here's what I was doing, and I want to turn from that and turn to God. I want to do what he calls me to do, and I want to be transformed to his character and likeness. And so I'm confessing to you in the hopes that God will, in time, help me to repent, that you as my church family would help me to repent. And so those are some of my confessions. I could stand up here all morning and make confessions to you, but I'd rather not because that would get more uncomfortable than I'm yet ready to get. So next step, we want to lament through listening. Now, I've been slow to listen and quick to speak. Again, I, I can't confess your sins, but I think in general, as I watch the 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 responses to racial inequality in our world, it seems pretty commonplace that the white majority of people that I know are pretty slow to listen and quick to speak. Now, again, I can't make that confession on your behalf. I don't want to accuse you of something that I'm guilty of doing, but that's my observation. And so one of the things that I feel convicted about for us as a church, it's been true of me, and, and I think for us as a church, is that we need to learn to lament with people of color by listening to their stories and perspectives and experiences. 
and not trying to explain it away through our stories, perspectives, and experiences. And so this morning we have a chance to do that through two of my friends who have helped me walk through this journey. First one is Pastor Jordan. He, he works with Treehouse, and he's starting a new church called Foundations Church. And so I had the chance to hang out with him this week and have lunch with him. We've been having lunch together for the last couple months on a regular basis. And uh, I just asked him to share with us a few things that would be good for the primarily white congregation of ours to hear. And so if you could um, listen up to Jordan. Hey Park, it's Pastor Andrew here along with my friend Pastor Jordan at our favorite place, Walk in the Park. We've uh, been coming here for the last couple months, getting to know each other, hanging out some more. You guys probably remember Jordan, he works at Treehouse, and he's also starting a new church called Foundations Church. And uh, Jordan, I just wanted to ask you to share with us as we're working through our, our sermon this morning, um, the point is to listen to, to love our neighbors, and particularly neighbors of color, and to, to love you by listening to and learning from you. And so I'm obviously a white guy, and you're a black guy, and uh, so why don't you share with us a couple of things, just a few challenges that you've had of being a black man in a primarily white culture? You know, that's, that's a very interesting question, Andrew. Um, I think it's the topic of, I guess you could say the year of 2020. I don't know what's probably Googled more, um, COVID or being black in America. <laughs> but I will go both. <laughs> So we'll find out at the end they do it. <laughs> I think, um, especially being in Minnesota, because Minnesota is predominantly white, you can go to the southern states and there's more African Americans, so there's more African American culture. Um, so the experiences are different, but then there are a lot of similarities. Um, and I think one thing that is a unique challenge um, for being black in America is the fact that, and everybody's probably heard this before, is the fact that everywhere you go, you don't know if you'll be accepted or not. Um, and that's that's just a reality for most African Americans. Um, some people try to mask it and um, say like, oh no, I never feel like that. But like, from my perspective, I just don't believe that's true because the reality is you don't know as being black where you can go and people will say, oh hey, that's a really cool guy. Or where are you gonna go where people aren't, aren't gonna look at your skin color? Well, they'll try to get to know you before they try to um, just look and say, oh, this is the person's color of their skin. That means this is who they must be or what they must what they must be. Um, but then I think another unique challenge, um, I must say for black women, I, I have to say this because I don't think black women get talked about enough on the race issue. Black women are considered to be like the bottom of the totem pole in society. So most people... They'll, they'll look at a black man even above a black woman. So black women don't get a lot of the love and the respect and the things like that that they deserve um, within and even outside their own community. And a lot of times we look at it as a black man shot by police or uh, this happened to a black man and we miss some of the things that happened to black women like Breonna Taylor. Um, we miss a lot of things that happened to black women like Sandra Bland. We miss a lot of things that happen to black women daily in corporate America, more black women are in corporate America than black men. And there are a lot of things that they deal with in corporate America, from sex scandals to not, to not even be able to get promotions or get raises on their job just based off of the color of their skin and not based off of the 
quality of your work. Um, and then the third and the final thing that I'll say is um, the stigma that black people fit in one box. And that box is basically entertainment, whether it's sports or whether it's music. But it's even in church, even in church, black churches are looked at as the charismatic, entertaining churches. You know, black people are great entertainers. So I think that our mind tells us that that's just what black people, that black people do, that's who they are. And black people are more than more than that. Um, so those challenges that I speak of, I truly do feel like the American culture has done a great job at taking those challenges that we face and then making us face them on a daily basis. On a daily basis. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot more. This video can be a few hours long. Um, those are just three that, that really resonate with me. Um, and it's something that I think that people need to think about and really need to process through. And I'll say this too for all the park people out there. Um, these may not be a top three for somebody else. You know, somebody else may give you three more. And I think that that should just speak volumes to how many challenges and issues actually face black people in America and then minorities in general. Um, America has to have some sort of change. And we may say the word awakening if you want to use that, but America has to have some foundational change and it has to start with the body, the body of Christ. So that's why I respect your pastor. I have a lot of respect for Pastor Andrew because he wants that change to be in the body of Christ as well. He has a heart for everybody. So God bless your pastor. God bless Park. God bless you guys. And God bless Jordan and his wife Nisa and Foundation Church. They're just kicking off. It's eight weeks going? Eight weeks this Sunday. Eight weeks going. And they're moving into a building next week. They've been doing it in their garage. It's amazing. I've watched a few services on Facebook Live. And, man, it's awesome to see you guys worshiping Jesus in the garage. And praying for you guys. So thanks so much for doing this with us. Appreciate you, man. All right, man. Dap, yeah, hold on, Dap, you gotta do oh, the dap now. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Video. So I hope that was helpful. Um, and it's, it's a little bit easier uh, when it's a little bit distant, right? I mean, probably a lot of you have watched some different videos online, and, and hopefully they've been helpful to you to listen to other people's perspective and learn. And when there's some distance, it makes it easier in certain ways. And the next opportunity for us to lament through listening is a little bit harder because it's closer to home. It's with one of our very own family members, and it's vulnerable to put yourself out there. Jordan, he has his own church. He's not a part of our church. He doesn't have to stand in front of you guys or interact with you in the hallways and wonder what you think about what he said. Um, but as I call Divya and Nate Apple up, they're a part of our church family, and they do. And so I'm excited to hear from you, Divya. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And um, yeah, I'll just turn it over to you. Can you hear me okay? No? Okay. Now? I share my story with you, I've questioned whether it's worth sharing. I've tried to rationalize my experiences, 
by assuming other people's best intentions or counting all the blessings in my life. But what God has been teaching me lately is that my pain is significant to him. That Jesus himself suffered on the cross to pay for the ways people have hurt me. I wonder sometimes if I'm too sensitive, too fragile. But when my heart doubts, I hear my Savior saying, I feel this pain too. I feel this pain more fully than you do, because I see the full extent of the evil in this world. I myself will validate your pain. So I've chosen to share my hurt with you, praying that God would soften your heart to feel a peace of the grief that God feels, and that through it, Jesus would bring healing to this church. I need to preface, I am not black. My experience as a brown person and daughter of immigrants has its own unique challenges, but I have not personally dealt with the generational trauma of legalized family separation, deculturalization, and abuse experienced by African Americans and Native Americans. However, there are some realities that every colored person lives with. We are used to being ambiguous. We are used to the sideways glances when someone seems less interested in talking to us than the white person standing next to us. All the nonverbal communication that people are uncomfortable with being around us. We go about life with this expectation that people are probably going to give us worse medical care and worse customer service because they don't want to deal with the discomfort of being around us or because they think subconsciously that having dark skin means we don't feel as much pain or because they think we aren't with it and that they can take advantage of us. Those are just the expectations we have in life. We get used to this idea that people don't want to be around us. It might not seem like a big deal, but these things have a cumulative effect and the potential to, to destroy any sense of self-worth. When I was six years old, my youngest brother, the fourth child, was born. My family had made an offer on a house in the suburbs. We were getting ready to move until my parents explained to us that we couldn't buy the house. The next door neighbors of the new house had bought it for a higher price. Then they sold it to another family, a white family, for a lower price than we had offered. My parents told us that some people don't want to live next door to a family of six Indians. That was the first time my parents talked to me about racism. Growing up, when people talked about me and my family members, they would use words like cute, adorable, crazy smart, good at math, or beautiful, which on the surface might seem like nice things, but none of those are personality traits. We never had a chance to break out of those labels and be real people with hurts and struggles. Those descriptors revealed that people didn't really know us. People use those, who use those terms fail to see me and my family as complex individuals with our own values who had given up our own culture to assimilate with white American culture. When we participate in social institutions like school and church, we must sacrifice our own Christian Indian values such as hospitality, family structure, and communal spirituality for white American values of rugged individualism and independence. My first year teaching was a turning point in my life because it made the effects of racism undeniably real to me. Every teacher has a crazy first year, but mine was unbearable. 
high school students racially and sexually harassed me, and I kept getting in trouble with administration for not being able to control them. Teachers at the school would ignore me when I tried to join their conversation, refusing to make eye contact. I kept thinking all of these things were happening to me because I wasn't a good enough teacher. In the spring of that year, I got a call into the administrative office and told I had a month to resign from my job on the grounds that I couldn't manage my class. When I talked with a few teachers about this, they said it was no surprise that this was not really the place for my type of person, that the kids and teachers simply did not respect a woman who looked like me. A principal told me I wouldn't want my kids in your classroom. People were okay if people like me were administering their medical care, but they weren't okay with having me in a place of authority where I was influencing their kids. They were okay with me as long as I stayed within their expectations for how someone like me should be. That's when it hit me when I realized someone could literally hate me because of how I looked. It shook my confidence deeply. My lifelong dream of becoming a teacher was broken when I realized I was the wrong skin color. It's more than five years later. I am the department chair of the 17 science teachers at Prior Lake High School. I have support and admiration from both teachers and students, and I know in my head and on paper that I am a good teacher, but I still hurt. My white female coworkers that are around my age have this confidence that seems out of reach to me. They demand things from their students, believing the kids owe it to them. For me, I have to fake it. There are still days when someone at work says or does something that triggers old emotions and I find myself crying in the chemical closet during passing time, wondering why I am there, hating my small brown body, wishing I could be white so people would take me seriously. I confess that I have internalized society's lies about me instead of God's truth about me. That every day I must fight to believe God's truth, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and that what he has called clean, no one can call unclean. I've bought into the lie that I need to perform to earn my place in this world. When I hear people talk about immigrants stealing the opportunities of Americans, I sometimes feel fear. I feel the need to prove that I and my family deserve to live here. I find myself working harder than my colleagues and striving to be a model citizen in every way. Trying to demonstrate your worthiness is exhausting, and although I may succeed in earning people's approval, I feel a deep ache when I see how people get frustrated with other immigrant groups whether they are Somali, Mexican, or Chinese. When I see immigrants, I see my parents. And when I see how people get annoyed or angry with them, my heart breaks. Over the years, I've caught myself hating the way I look. I've worried about spending too much time in the sun and looking too dark. I spent hundreds of hours smoothing out my thick, dry, curly hair, convincing myself that I was just trying to look professional, when in reality, I was trying to look like the white girls around me. Sometimes my distinctly Indian traits feel inherently ugly to me. I know my husband loves me, but sometimes I feel like my brown hand looks wrong in his white one. I remember thinking as a teenager that I wanted to marry a white man because I wanted access to a white person's world. I saw a contrast between the instant respect my white brother-in-law got from people and the constant slights and mistreatment that my father endured. I wanted my kids to have a dad who people would treat well. And I knew that type of man couldn't be one with my skin color. 
This self-hate that I have held on to has hurt my relationship with my now husband, Nate. Within a couple of months of meeting, I could feel tension in our relationship. I had trouble expressing what I wanted to Nate because I had a deep-set belief that because he was white, whatever he thought or was interested in was better. I remember feeling a strange shame when I needed his help or wanted him to change. I thought I should be happy because I had found a white boy who would like me, but I could not find peace. God and his grace would not allow us to stay in that place. Nate is learning to love me, all of me, including the strength that has grown from my suffering and the values that my parents have passed down to me that reflect unique facets of God's nature. We are growing in a pattern of talking about hurt and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. There are often days when something someone does or says bring back the years of hurt and I am back in a place of self-hate. I've cried out to God asking him why he gave me this skin if it means people hate me because of it. I've asked him why he brought me into this world. Why I must continue to live if this skin will continue to bring me pain until the day I die. Sometimes the pain is too great to bear. My sister and her husband, a white police officer, have four adopted black kids. In the community garden outside the school where the two older kids go, there is a bench dedicated to their lunch monitor who was killed, Mr. Phil or Philando Castile, as you may know him. The kids never knew Mr. Phil, and yet his absence is impossible to ignore. Mr. Phil truly cared about kids. He made sure everyone had something to eat, even if they forgot their lunch money. I wonder what it would look like if my niece and nephew had Mr. Phil in their life, a grown-up they could look up to, one who looked just like them, the day after George Floyd was murdered, the four kids, the youngest of whom was three, made signs to bring to a protest. As the kids colored, their parents explained to them why they were going to the protest. Each of the four kids processed the information in their own way, but they all got the bottom line. The kids understood that because they were black, some people wouldn't like them, and some people would be scared of them, possibly scared enough to kill them. They understood that not all police officers were like their dad. This is the kind of pain I cannot handle. When I think about George Floyd's murder, I think about my nephew growing up. I think about the kind of hate the world has for him. What kind of world do we live in that my nine-year-old nephew has to deal with this reality? Why must these four young kids have the innocence of their childhood stolen from them? The color of my skin is the thorn in my flesh, the burden I must bear as long as I live on this earth. In this world, it is my weakness, but in God's wisdom, it is the way that I have learned to, I, I've learned intimacy with my suffering Messiah. Jesus, the man of sorrows, died on the cross of shame so that one day I might enter freely into his presence, all my tears wiped away. I long for that day when we will be free from the effects of racism, when we will sit together at the banquet table as one redeemed family.
Thank you, Divya, for sharing. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's no easy way forward, church family. I hope this is just the tip of the iceberg for us as part community, learning how to lament with one another and to love one another and to grow up into Christ-likeness with one another. I have no answers. I have no responses. I listened to your story, Divya, and I'm once again saddened. And I'm saddened by how the first time I heard it, I had responses rather than tears. Thank you for your grace in my life. And it's going to happen over and over and over again. Here's our hope, Jesus Christ. So I'd invite you to grab the communion cup in front of you in the pew, and let's remember that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The worship team is going to come forward and they're going to play a song and I ask that you just stay seated where you are and allow these words and allow Divya's testimony and allow the Spirit of God to minister to you as they play. And when you feel ready, go ahead and take communion. If you are a follower of Christ, these elements are here to remind you of your union, your unity with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. He gave his body in your place. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And so we take communion to remember our union with him, but we take it in community also to remember our unity with one another. This unity is not easy. It doesn't come naturally. It's supernatural. And so our only way to grow in this as a church family is to cling to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.
And so take this time to sit, to reflect, to repent, to rejoice, to do as the Spirit leads you to do, and then take communion when the Lord leads you to.